Hello there. I'm Chris Unger, and this is Thanks for Reading. Thanks for coming back for episode two, or welcome if this is your first time listening. Today, I have the absolute honor to welcome Lee Mandelo to the show, author of the recent release, Summer Suns, published, published by Tor.com, and available wherever books are sold. Lee, thank you for taking the time to be on the show, and welcome. Hello, I'm so glad to be here and on episode two, I believe. So I feel very honored. <laughs> yes, you are my first uh, a novelist I've had on the show. So you will go down and show history. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, some of the important things like pronouns, a um, little bit about your work in education. Yeah, so I use he or they, whatever is most comfortable and fun at the time for people, lets everyone switch it up a little bit as things get fun, you know. I, love um, I am currently yeah, a doctoral candidate at the University of Kentucky, so I passed my exams. I am now in the dissertation writing phase and uh, doing research favorite. on sexuality and yeah, and queer masculinities and all that jazz. So ties into the book, you know, a little bit there. Um, and currently next semester, I'm doing research assistant work for the social theory program at our university. So it's a seminar on reproductive justice. So that'll be fun. I get to help with guest talks and things. That seems very, very timely. I mean, uh, seems like that is a very in the headlines kind of topic even. So that should be really interesting. Yep. Yeah. And should provoke a lot of a uh, conversation, I'm sure, on campus. Yeah. So we'll We'll see how that part goes. <laughs> well, your book, Summer Suns, really captivated me uh, so much as I read it this fall. For our listeners who haven't read it yet, what is your elevator pitch of this book? Yeah, so the marketing folks who are brilliant and better at these things came up with a sweltering Southern Gothic, which I have stolen every time since then, because I think that does encompass some of the emotional vibe. Uh, and for the little plot elevator summary, our protagonist, Andrew, is about to move down to start college with his best friend slash more complicated than that relationship man uh, at Vanderbilt and realizes right beforehand that he has apparently committed suicide. Uh, but he does not believe that is the case. There's a spooky ghost. So at that point, he's fairly sure that he needs to go investigate travels on down to Tennessee and meets a whole pack a very rowdy, very attractive, very questionable men that his friend was hanging out with, which leads to self-discovery and mystery discovery. <laughs> that is a very great right. summary of that. I think it, it hits on on all the, the topics covered and is I, all those things. It's just is very attractive to me personally. And I hope anybody listening will find that very interesting too. I gotta say, when I saw this book on the shelf, even though we're not using a visual medium right now, I have it handy. Um, it really just, it's got two hands reaching for each other and it really reached out to me and grabbed me. And I'm like, that's what I want to be my spooky fall read. And it delivered. Uh, oh, and also, I I should have put I should have woven this into your introduction, uh, but congratulations on on the nice little spot that NPR gave you as naming Summer Suns as one of like the best horror books of 2021. Like, what a nice surprise! Yeah, that blew me away. Like, obviously, as with every nerd on this earth, like the, the thought of being in NPR is on your secret list. Like, you know, you're like, I would love that. I'll never speak that aloud. I just want it to happen. And so when I got a bunch of tweets from friends, you're like, oh my God, you're on the NPR podcast. It was astounding. I'm still over the moon about yeah. it. <laughs> and I guess every little bit of, uh, of, publicity helps. And I would like to think that I was uh, ahead of the curve because I had already reached out to you even before that went out. So uh, yes, <laughs> maybe, maybe I have a future career at NPR uh, as, hey. as one of their book consultants. Um, I can, Wouldn't that be just a dream? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so 
Back to the book. Now, this book has four major elements that came together for me, and that's the world of academia, the car racing culture, the supernatural, and queerness and queer discovery. Now, how on earth did this all come together in a single book? I've never read anything quite like it. Yes. So usually I think I'm trying to work together all the kinds of things that I too love <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, and some of this is naturally, as with a lot of novels, semi-autobiographical. There's a lot of real life that you steal from in some of those ways. Does like that car culture. Like and... fast cars? <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I wonder who could guess that I like a fast car. Yeah. And like just being queer in the South, being in an academic institution where I'm from a very poor rural background, and then you make it to graduate school. And you're like, oh, some of the people here are very well to do, but I'm also having to fit in with that. Like, how do you balance those two lives? And I had started writing the first first draft that became this book at the very end of my master's degree in Kentucky originally. So I was clearly processing some of those things together at the time and how I felt about it. But also I love the gothic genre because it's already sort of playing with horror novels and like dramas of manners sometimes, but like, what does a drama of manners look like for a bunch of like rude gays who drive cars? Like it is still a drama of manners, but the manners look different. So I wanted to play with some of that. And I think people have really been super receptive to the fact that it's like four different books at once and everyone sort of has their favorite vibe. Like the people who really enjoy the car stuff will ask about that first sometimes. You're like, ah, I love that car. And then the academia folks tend to have their like, God, that feels right. <laughs> I've enjoyed that. That is very cool um, because uh, like the the queerness was the thing that caught me first. I mean, I also feel like 2021 was really good for a lot of queer releases because uh, it seemed like every time. So I, I work at a Barnes and Noble, and we've got like a new hardcovers section at the front of the store. And it seemed like yeah. every time I was going up there, I'm like, oh, that's, that looks queer coded. That looks like it's for me. And mm -hmm. uh, I was, I've just been so delighted to find so many releases like that and just seeing publishers, um, I mean, and the, the book selling industry be like, there is, there, people want to read these stories and we're going to, we're going to put them yeah. out there and we're going to, we're not going to stash them away in, you know, the some subcategory, we're going to put them up front and center and people are finding them. Yeah, no, I've also noticed that. And this was such a year to debut in for queer fiction. Like I have a huge stack of books that I just have not read because so much stuff came out this year that every time I went to the store, I would be grabbing someone else's book. Like um, Shelley Parker Chan's She Who Became the Sun was one that I reviewed over the summer that I'm still just like talking up everywhere. I loved it. The transition baby obviously was everywhere. There's just so many books. <laughs> I know uh, it's it's just uh, for anybody who's queer or even just interested in queer storylines. Boy, this has been like a jackpot year for, and I'm I hope hoping that's like the start of a trend of seeing lots more of those stories like make it to the bestseller list even. Um, Cause you know, yeah. you don't have to be queer to enjoy a good queer story. <laughs> no. <laughs> so once you got the idea for the novel in your head, how did you go about writing it and ultimately landing a publisher that would put it in bookstores across the country? And what did your process look like? Yeah. So this was a long one. I know I have many a friend who's a quick drafter and I am not. As I mentioned a minute ago, I started the rough, what would become this book draft and I think 2015. It was like early 2015, I think. So it was about a five year process between first start, write a draft of the book. It's very messy, revise that uh, and send around initially. I did the full normal gamut of send to agents, do submissions, had several folks, you know, asking for partials or interested in this and that. And then you have to have those conversations that that takes forever also, because agents are busy. They are representing their actual clients. 
so once that happened, uh, I had signed with um, Tara, who's my agent currently, because she was just very passionate about it. And that helped her kind of rise to the top in my like current choice back then, because she liked the book so much and was so open about like, I will simply die if I can't wrap this book. Like it was one of those energies. I was like, I like that. You seem dedicated to this. You will help me sell this book. Yeah. Um, and then when we sent it to tour, uh, Carl, who's my editor, Carl Engel Laird, picked it up and had a really powerful immediate response as like another person who, you know, identifies with elements of the story and had gotten back to me pretty immediately and was like, I want this book. I understand this book. Here's what I want to see from a revision for this. And I agreed with like everything he said. So we did another revision because that's what this life is like. So I rewrote a bunch more stuff and it's a first novel. So it naturally had a lot of mess in the plot structure and that sort of thing. Like, well, you could fix some of this stuff. It could be a little smoother. And I'm so glad to have had that really good feedback because I think it made it a much stronger book. I am so happy uh, then, to hear that you had such a great team behind you. Yes. I just think there's a lot more young queer folks in publishing now than there were a decade ago. Like objectively, you can just have a whole team of folks who are on the team, so to speak, you know? And I don't think that would have necessarily been the case the same way 10, 20 years ago. I think you're a hundred percent on the money with that. Uh, um, now, what if now, because you said that you had kind of started it with like kind of went while you were st still in school or right after you'd finished school? It was about the end of my master's degree at uh, in Louisville in Kentucky. And then I quit academia for like five years because <laughs> I, as people might guess from the book, once they've read it, it was a rough go <laughs> at that point. I had a lot of conflicting feelings about it. I have since gone back. It got its hooks back in, but it's with a more critical eye, I think, at this point in my 30s now that I'm like, this is a nice job to do research and write gay books and things. But I think you can be a little more work-life balance <laughs> after you've taken a break and come back. <laughs> so what did it look like physically writing the book? Um, were you kind of like a make it your job kind of writer where I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to like, devote time every single day to this or was this just kind of a started it as a like you said kind of processing things kind of story and then it evolved into something more serious it was pretty serious the whole time but I was also actively in like coursework and thankfully where I actually finished writing the book was when I quit that summer I didn't find a job immediately like a more business job mm -hmm. I worked for the summer at one of the only remaining gay porn theaters in the tri-state area where I just was getting paid cash like to work the counter and sell theater tickets and I could write while I was at work. So I did that. That was part of my job. Oh my gosh. And then I started working at like a, a higher education place. <laughs> yeah. It was a wild job. It left an impression after a couple of months, you know? But so that really helped in a weird way, like, because I wasn't thinking a lot at work. It was mostly downtime. Like, there aren't a lot of customers during the day. So <laughs> I just wrote. Um, I'm also really happy that there is, that that kind of space still exists. Uh, I, I feel like that's something that is only in old movies and old books and that kind of warms my heart that there that there's still uh, gay porno theaters out there. <laughs> yes, yeah, I'm currently working on a messy short story about a haunted porn theater that is loosely inspired by that summer job. <laughs> oh my gosh! If you need if you need a review reader, <laughs> send that my way. That sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Well, and it's messy now, but I hope soon it'll be a story. <laughs> Um, well, and also that that makes me think too, because um, um, before our meeting here today, I was I was just kind of looking at your little bio in the back of of the book, and you're no stranger to the writing world. Uh, I mean, you've got some you you drop some big names there, like the uh, Nebula Award, the Lambda, uh, and the Hugo. Um, tell me a little bit about that work, because this is your first novel, right? Yes. Yeah. 
So very early on, like God bless Tor.com, the website, uh, they hired me at 19 to write a column about queer science fiction uh, because they really wanted to cover that. And I had a friend who was working there as like a production assistant who got me an in on the job. And I will be forever grateful for them getting a baby, like a chance to write that column. When I'm sure there were folks who had more publication credits, more qualifications than me. Uh, and I still sometimes I'm like, well, there sure are things that I wrote at 20 just out there in the world forever now. <laughs> you know, that's part of the internet too. Right. The internet uh, and from there, I edited Strange Horizons magazine for a few years. Yeah, no, it does not. <laughs> yeah. So some of the nomination stuff, like the Hugos was for Strange Horizons as an editor. And I do like editing short fiction, but I haven't been doing much of that in the past few years, but maybe in the future. I'll do another anthology or something because I think there's a real joy in getting to like shepherd other writers like that's what editing feels like when it's short fiction is that you just get to hand other people really cool stories that you found and that's just a good feeling <laughs> you're like yes I would like other people to see this cool story so I want to go back to that eventually that was nice <laughs> I love that that you've you've got a kind of natural nurturing there and and especially after having received so much good nurturing yourself yeah now queer publishing I will give the thumbs up in a lot of ways like your book succeeds in some part because you have friends who you're nice to who are nice to you like you have a community and that's beautiful because not all art worlds are like that to the same extent so I think it's very nice that for the most part, aside from some Twitter dust-ups, we mostly try to be nice to each other, I think. <laughs> I like that, Twitter dust-ups. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> now, uh, a central motif that is present, present throughout the book um, is that of the Southern Gothic. Uh, is there something that draws you to that? And are there some other examples of like other Southern Gothics that have inspired you or made you want to go down that path? Um, I grew up in the South, so I'm from <laughs> rural Kentucky. Uh, and that I think gave me just growing up a sense in particular of nature and spookiness. Like I didn't realize till moving to a city when I got older and like not everyone just believes in ghosts in a casual way. Like, I'm superstitious. That's just the thing you were raised with. And of course, since then, I feel like I'm more normal about it. But like, as a kid, tells stuff and spooky ghost stories, and then going into an English degree, the literature of the place, the space of South, all of it is famous. And I think in part that also has to do with how dark the history is in the South in a way that I think is very on the surface in terms of the history of slavery, like the ongoing issues with racial segregation in the South, that that's like a very real thing that is just sort of the air you breathe. Worked at how terrifying that was and sort of represented that sense of bad history, like the Gothic is all about the bad history. So yeah, I think that's part of why, what draws me into it and you get to play a lot with genre in it people will let you be scary they'll let you be sexy like they just call it a gothic because it's a it's a mix-up genre and i like this <laughs> nice um are there any like other southern gothics that stand out to you or um are like favorite ones that you've read i i know that people will hear this and yell at me a little bit in their minds i do still like hemingway i know like he has his flaws a million of them might be more flaws than not, but that's still like an early impression on like childhood reading me was his particular prose style and how upsetting relationships are in it and how everyone is haunted by things. And then more contemporary work, I really, really liked in terms of adaptations of the Gothic, um, Mexican Gothic recently that came out that was another sort of taking these tropes of the gothic and doing something different with them and it was brilliant also shirley jackson like the classic haunting of hill house is a gothic it's not southern necessarily but it sure is a haunted house gothic it's all those sorts of energies yeah i like that that mix of like a little contemporary a little classic uh those are some good picks i think and i think you are you are 
totally allowed to still like Hemingway. I uh, I wasn't aware that people, you know, give you crap for choosing Hemingway as like a favorite Southern Gothic, you know. His prose is really good, you know? <laughs> you know what, you can't, you can't beat it when it's just like straight up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess you've kind of probably partially answered this next question already for me, but where does your interest in the supernatural stem from? Um, I've got to say, I've been watching the show Supernatural a lot lately, and I feel like this fits that taste like to a T. Uh, so that was, that's been extra enjoyable for me as a reader. Um, and so you said like, there's a lot of, of just growing up in the South, like an influence of there's kind of a spookiness hanging in the background just because of the, all the history there. Um, but I don't know, maybe what I'm hoping to hear is if you've had any experiences that influenced you. So I totally feel like I have had the spooky experiences as a kid. Uh, and you never know as an adult, if you're like, was I just imagining that? Like at a family's old house, most of my family are from rural Mississippi. So before I became around a teenager and stopped going to rural Mississippi for obvious reasons, <laughs> like you would encounter weird noises or you know you're alone in the house, but you think you see something. And I'm fully willing to be on board with like, sure, maybe that was a ghost. <laughs> like, who's to say? It was certainly spooky. But also I like the reference to the show Supernatural. Obviously there's a joke about it in the book. I did really like the first couple of seasons when it was originally airing because it had cars and reasonably handsome men and it was a monster of the week show. And I grew up loving the X-Files also. And I think that's in the mix somewhere of that cross genre, like genuinely terrifying sometimes, but also funny other times. Like I want to live up to the energy of the X-Files sometimes a little bit. <laughs> Yes, to all of that. <laughs> uh, well, I, I love that because I am also kind of rediscovering the X-Files now as an adult because it, I, I like caught little bits of it when I was a kid, when it was on originally. And I never watched it reliably to, you know, get the whole story arc. Uh, but yeah. see, that's the great thing about being an adult is you can just, you know, find what you find what you want whenever you want it. Uh, and yeah, I yeah. definitely feel that Monster of the Week vibe is so delightful in a way. Yes. It, and it can scare the pants off you sometimes. There's a couple of episodes I can think of. Yeah. <laughs> I, I also rewatched the first few seasons of the X-Files again, I think in 2020 at the beginning of the dark time, you know, <laughs> when we're all inside watching old TV again to feel something. Uh, and their version of the thing, the one that had the John Carpenter movie and all that about it, is still terrifying. Like every version of that story is deeply upsetting to watch. And the X-Files one is also still scary. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I remember because I was starting from the beginning too. So I've, I've watched that one not too long ago, actually. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And as far as like spooky stuff goes, I, I think I, I've always wanted to have that kind of, like you said, like the, the childhood experiences where like you saw something at an old house and you're like, was that a, was that a ghost or was it or was it just my imagination? But because you're a kid, you're kind of your own unreliable narrator. But it wasn't until yeah. just recently for me, I, I live in an apartment building that is a, about a hundred years old. And I'm like, and it, it looks like something out of The Shining. And I'm uh -huh. like, come on, I've got to have a creepy experience here. And I've, I've lived in this place for like, eight years, I think. Just within the last year or so, I finally had a weird experience where I, I got up and uh, like I went to the kitchen and then I came back to the bedroom and the, the sink in the bathroom was just on full blast. I'm like, who did that? <laughs> and that's happened several times so I'm like, okay. I'm like cool as long as as long as they don't like go out of their way to like 
actively scare me, I'm good. They can stay, they're fine. So uh, moving on to the academic world in this novel. Um, so it's set at Vanderbilt and it's a very cutthroat atmosphere. <laughs> uh, and you've had experience in the upper echelons of academia. Has that been your personal experience? You were saying earlier, some people have given you some feedback that it seems real. <laughs> yes, I think it, I did have some rough experiences in that master's program in terms of having an advisor who was very much kind of the old school of collecting his favorite smart students and expecting you to sort of battle it out with each other for his entertainment. And there's a lot of interesting, weird favoritism and go drink at his house. Also not helpful is that my like mythologically bad, as I've referenced in interviews before, boyfriend of that time was one of the other students in the program with me. There were many bad choices rolled up into one and that and that also colored a lot of the start of the book was me working through that very problematic relationship with like a straight identifying man who was not, but it was a mess, who was a fellow student in this program that was very competitive where we were doing similar work and so just hung out together all the time. It was a deeply codependent, unpleasant experience. <laughs> but I think that's where the mythology of dark academia comes from a lot, because you're stuck with this very enclosed emotional space. <laughs> like, it's always the joke, right, that marriages don't last through grad school because of that level of like forced intimacy. And I think that was something I wanted to reflect in there a little bit too. <laughs> I think that is, a, that is very well put. Um, it's sort of like dating your coworkers, you know, when you're, when it's like, yes, proximity can uh, help relationships bloom, but it can also breed discontent as well. Thank then you're stuck there. Congrats. <laughs> oh yeah. God forbid you have a messy breakup within your own uh, workplace or, or like an intimate doctoral program. <laughs> <laughs> My current program is not like that. I will give, I will give UK's gender studies department the thumbs up on that. It's a lot more communal, way less cutthroat. <laughs> So they get my thumbs up on that. <laughs> That's it. And then I assume you're not dating within your, your field. No. <laughs> I'm older now. <laughs> so the cars. Uh, yes. There is a lot of different ones mentioned. And I don't think I would uh, recognize a WRX if one ran over my toe. So, um, so you are a car person and... Uh, it sounds like you probably didn't have to do a whole lot of research. Um, how did you decide to weave that in there? And how did you, um, I guess, decide how much to put in without being like, is this going to go over someone's head and like sound just ridiculous to somebody who doesn't know anything about cars? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so two-part answer on that one. First, I did not have to do a lot of research because almost all of these cars are cars that associates of mine have driven in the past or that I have wished I could own or, and they're all sort of little Easter egg commentary for car people about the personalities of the people who drive them. Like, for example, that Eddie's car is the most expensive one, but also he hasn't worked on it himself, really, is like a critique of his class in a lot of ways, that he's way richer and just kind of doesn't think about it, is a little careless. So it's a show-off car, but not one that shows that he does a lot with his hands, basically. I do think they're sexy. They're very loud and big, but they're not my favorite. The WRX is my favorite, as everyone could probably guess who's read the book. <laughs> I've given it to a certain interest in the text. Um, but the initial draft, and this is a thank you to Carl, my editor who I mentioned before, I'd kind of scaled back on some of the, the detail almost, like all of the racing is still there because it's a way for people to have intimacy together. It's a very close-knit circle with a lot of adrenaline, you feel a lot, it's fun. There's not a lot else to do sometimes out in the South and rural areas, but drive really fast. So I grew up doing that. Uh, but when he read it, he was like, okay, 
Okay, so I'm a New Yorker. I I also would not know a WRX that ran over my toe, but I want more from you because I can tell that you want to tell us more detail and it will make these scenes like more passionate and cool. That revision, I was like, oh no, this feels more real. So even if you don't know the cars, you've got that detail. It feels more real to you. So that I think like kudos to Carl for encouraging me to just go ham on like however much detail I wanted on the car stuff. I like that because it, I mean, I feel like I got a bit of an education there in the, in the car department because that is definitely one of the fields I don't know anything about. So it was, it was, it was fun to learn something. And also when something like that is important to the writer and the character, it makes like, if I'm, I'm invested in the character, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm take me on the ride, you know, I'm here for the taking. So now I, I want to get to one of my favorite things about this book. So I have to say that there are a few steamy scenes in here that were quite arousing. Uh, I distinctly, so this is, I, I have to share this. Uh, I distinctly remember being at the lunch table at work and reading about these, some of these characters getting down and dirty and having a moment where I questioned whether I should be reading this in private. <laughs> now tell us, <laughs> well, what was it like writing that kind of content? And how do you know when you've said enough or too much in those intimate scenes? Yeah, so I have like a whole, which anyone who has read the book will guess thing about how important I think it is, especially in writing queer fiction, like for adults, that we don't shy away from the sexuality, which I think is a problem sometimes as we are kind of moving queer love story. There's really resistance distance to showing queer sex and like intimacy and eroticism. So I knew there was going to be on the page scenes because the poor boy works so hard to come to terms with himself. Like it would feel like a cheat almost to not show the culmination of that and have that be very joyful and like horny. That's important. It's part of the culture. It's part of our lives. So the initial draft, I had written as much as I thought I could get away with you know, like in a mainstream like novel. And then I went back and was like, that's not quite enough actually. Like, I don't want the scene to be over yet and kept going and positive on it in the process that were like, wow, that is exceptionally hot. Congrats, good job, good as is. And I felt again, like from earlier in our conversation, that sense of indication of like, things seem different than they used to be because I was a little worried about there is a full-on gay sex scene in this novel that is being marketed in a very like mainstream way that'll be on a Barnes and Noble table, you know, like <laughs> I've the other day was in a bookstore while I was traveling around and signed a copy for someone who's picking it up who's like saw it on TikTok and like did not look like the audience that I would have expected. And I'm like, cool, that's fucking great, actually. I love this. I hope you don't mind or enjoy this scene when you get to it, <laughs> like that sort of thing. But I think people are more open now. So I'm really glad that I did it because it's important to me and my work. I mean, as I mentioned in the intro, I study queer sexuality. I think it's important. I think we could contribute a lot to making the world suck less also for straight people in terms of their sex relationships. They took <laughs> some lessons sometimes from us. So yeah, I think it was important and I, I love that people have enjoyed it so much. Like it is a consistent comment where people are like, thank you for doing that. That was great. So I'm excited about it. I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, five stars from me for that, for those hot scenes. Uh, <laughs> extremely effective. Uh, also, <laughs> I love that, uh, that TikTok has become a really great way for people to discover books like this. So I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that and that that some people out there are talking about Summer Suns on TikTok and it's getting people excited about it. Yeah. It's like a whole new world to me. I appreciate seeing that it's happening. And I've always been a very online person and TikTok is I think my signal flare of like, oh, are you getting older? Because I just don't use it. And I'm like, is this the one? Is this what it happens? 
that I'm just happy to let the younger generation have this one. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> but it's very cool. I've seen people send me some of the, the videos that folks make that are very detailed, like well shot, gorgeous aesthetic videos of like a skull in the woods with the book. I'm like, hell yes. Thank you. This is the coolest thing. So love it. <laughs> that is, is so cool to hear. Uh... Um, well, let's see. We'll we'll stay on the um, on the the sexuality topic. Uh, so the main character's sexuality evolves throughout the book. Um, it becomes a bit about self discovery in the end, and I appreciate the nuance you had with this character uh, and how it's not like a just woke up gay kind of situation, but that it built up and built up until it released itself in a moment where it couldn't help but burst forth. I'm, as I'm reading this question now, I realize the, the wording of this is kind of perfect, I, I guess. So um, <laughs> can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the journey you had with that character, I guess, in that context? Yeah. So I think, and this is something that's interestingly come up in some of the, like, we all look at our Goodreads reviews occasionally, like whether you should or not, people who had started the book and seemed like confused because they didn't think it was queer enough in the opening. And I think I see that sometimes now where people expect it to be the woke up gay, like you simply know, and you know the right label and you know what it means and you know who you're attracted to. But that's just not how that shit works for anyone in real life ever <laughs> that I've ever met in life. Like, even if you've got some stuff really clear early on, like I did as a young one, there are other things that can change or evolve or you meet a person you're like, oh, okay, that's what's up with that. That's a new thing that I didn't know I felt or could do as you get older. And I think particularly for men, men in the South, et cetera, coming to terms with being queer can take longer a lot of the time if you're in a really homosocial environment where maybe you can't process what those intense feelings are because it's a lot more dangerous to process what those feelings are in those spaces like it can be physically threatening and i think that's something that i wanted to deal with in the book too is you see why andrew hasn't thought about this before and it's not cluelessness it's like a very purposeful self-protection i think in a lot of ways that when he's in a safer space with more people who are out and open and willing to talk about it like he figures things out a little more because there's room to do it. And I wanted that journey to be on the page that it is something that it took him time to come to terms with and to understand what he felt even in these ways. Because I think sometimes that's how it goes for a lot of folks. I think we could use stories like that where he's alone in a lot of the book. But I think that makes it sort of more satisfying when he does finally get his moment, you know, or at least I hope. <laughs> uh, I also appreciate the, uh, you know, without giving too much away for, for people who haven't read it, um, I also like what you did with the um, Hulse character that, let's just say the, have you done this before moment uh, is a very real, I really hope I'm not giving too much away, but like, uh, if, I feel like that's a very real storyline that is something that I think maybe doesn't get talked about a lot. But I mean, when you think about human sexuality overall is probably a lot more common than any of us think. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that was... Hulse is obviously, I love him. Like it, people who've read the book will know <laughs> like that comes through, I think. But I also wanted, particularly with his characterization to look at how like masculine presenting dudes to use a very loose like phrase there can also be very caring and intimate and like be careful with other people in a way that I think at the start of the book, I've known a lot of folks whose initial arc is like, oh, I don't like that guy. He seems like too much. And then as it goes on, they're like, oh no, I love him. Like the more you see of his actual personality, not just that surface. Because like, again, I grew up in the South. I'm from around here. I've known a lot of guys who you meet them initially and you might think from that outside surface, like, no thanks. Or you might 
people don't associate with what queerness looks like, whatever that means. And then you get to know them and you're like, oh, okay, the same's here. <laughs> That's good. And I really wanted to have a, an interest on the page, like a handsome gang, because I think we should hold people to that standard to be better people. Like they can do it. <laughs> it it's funny. I could think of a real life person that I, that kind of matches that that description um somebody who kind of comes off as like a big dumb jock but then when you actually talk to them and have a conversation with them it's like they've got so much more going on upstairs and they're also really like sensitive to uh to like queerness and um, like they're really protective. So it's like, yeah, if you can get that guy on your side, like he's just a big old teddy bear, but he will defend you to the, to the end. Um, so I'm kind of, I kind of love that kind of character. That's very fun. So when I was reading the book, I feel like it played out like a movie in my head. Would you ever consider adapting it into a miniseries or a movie or any other format? And has anybody already reached out uh, and made any kinds of offers like that? So I would love it. Uh, my like deep, I will yell it into the universe to make that maybe happen one day, fingers crossed, would be Brian Fuller. Like, just look at Hannibal. You know, I would trust that man to make this into something. I think he knows what he should do with it. I would trust him implicitly. <laughs> uh, there's been some expressed interest, but no offers at this stage. So I can say that. So fingers crossed. Brian Fuller, if you're out there listening, like, oh my gosh. come on. I would love that for you. <laughs> uh, that's, that's cool that you've already got like your dream dream director in, in mind. Uh, yeah, I, I could totally see it being a film or a mini series or something like that. I think it would translate really well. Now, what about, speaking of, I guess, transcriptions, um, has Summer Suns been translated into any other languages yet? We did uh, get rights recently sold for Turkish, which was an interesting first one. Not what I would have called, like as a guess. But so we do have <laughs> Turkish rights sold now for translation. And I've heard from the writer Grapevine that sometimes they do very pretty editions. Like, so I'm excited to see what that turns into. That would be so cool. Um, I admit, I really do love like sometimes when I travel internationally, I go to the bookstores, even if I don't know the language, like if I can't read it in the language, but I still want a book just because they look pretty. Uh, so sometimes yeah. it's fun to look for some of my favorites in another language. So possibly coming to Turkish uh, <laughs> bookstores in, in the future. <laughs> yeah, I'm Hoping we get more. I would just love to see multiple kind of envisionings of what the language would look like and what sort of covers people would go for, especially outside of the US, because it's such an American book. Like, I would be intrigued. I'd like to see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And sometimes, uh, sometimes I end up liking other languages' covers way better than the original cover art. And I'm like, can I? Can I get that in English? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> yeah, I know Korean novel translations. I will just do like a shout out on that. They have gorgeous covers usually, like just astoundingly beautiful. I'm like, please. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think Koreans have an amazing aesthetic in general. That's probably why. <laughs> That's why they're conquering the world with their bands right now. Hey, you know, there is my BTS thanks at the end of the book. I'm a big fan. <laughs> I love that. So I guess if any of them are listening, have them look you up. <laughs> uh, now, what about critical reactions? Like, uh, you know, every pretty much every book gets a, a formal review. Um, what, is, what has been the general reaction to the book? It's been really good in a way that like you don't e expect, like I couldn't, it's a debut. So like your best hope, I think for that's usually, I hope my colleagues like it, like the people whose books I like enjoy it. And I hope some people have fun. And I, you don't, or at least I didn't cross my fingers hoping for like the NPR bump or anything. You can't guess that. 
Um, but what I've really enjoyed has been seeing some of people's like critical essays. Like there was one in the Chicago Review of Books where I was like, oh, you got what I was doing on that in a very particular way. And that's a, a pleasure that I just cannot overstate is seeing someone else like ask a question or write a sentence about it. I'm like, you saw a game that I was playing there, like kind of just for me and you got it. And that's really pleasurable, like to see that it worked. Um, some of the good conversation also has come around the way I've noticed on Twitter that like, I'm a white person who is writing about academia in the South and I'm very much trying to write about whiteness in that context. And race comes up quite a bit in terms of the politics and the money and how people are treated and the history, but from more of a perspective of like, what is whiteness doing there? Because I think that is something that we see not enough of in contemporary fiction by really well-meaning progressive white writers who want to talk about this stuff, but still sort of end up almost treating whiteness like a neutral that they don't notice and sort of filling a cast with diverse characters who they haven't examined maybe how their white protagonist is interacting with those people. <laughs> and I really wanted to do that and was worried, of course, that I would not do a good job at it. And people have so far seemed to think it did what I wanted it to do in terms of critiquing that system. So everyone in the book has their flaws and no one is like a perfect person, but you see how those social systems they're embedded in, be they class or race or geography or sexuality or gender, like all in, intersect each other in a way. And I was really glad and relieved <laughs> that that seemed to work, like that I had done what I wanted to do for most people there. So that made me happy that was good. <laughs> and and you know, that I, that's totally another theme that I, I could have, um, kind of bundled in there with all of these other great, um, great compelling things that are going on in this book. Um, and I like that it does just seem to, it's so kind of seamlessly put into the, the fabric of the story that it doesn't feel like you were trying to be like, I have an agenda to talk about this issue that it's sort of something that just kind of, as you're reading, if you can recognize it as it yeah. as it happens naturally, and uh, I think that's probably why other people are recognizing that uh, it was done well, and so kudos to you for that. Because uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, even though it's 2021, there are are still disparities at every level of education. Yeah. And you see it a lot. And once you get to graduate programs in terms of class and race of like, it's only been a couple of generations now, most places where anyone's even been allowed in to the higher education institutions and like Vanderbilt's money comes from slavery, some of it. Like that is just a reality of institutions in the South that doesn't get talked about very much. <laughs> it's like, well, I can't write a book set here at a university and not talk about that a little bit. Like you're avoiding it otherwise. So yeah, right. it's the Americanness of the book where I'm like, what will it be like in Turkish? How will this come across? This is very American. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I, I wonder how long a, a, a translation takes for a full length novel. I'm sure it, it probably takes a minute. <laughs> yeah, kudos to translators. They do amazing work. Thank God for them. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So of course, now I have to ask, what is next for you? Is there a novel already in the works coming down the pipeline? You got any other, I know you mentioned a short story that you said was still messy, but uh, um, yeah, what have you got in the works? So I do have a novella coming out in Tor.com's novella line, the like cool, sexy ones. I'm a fan of so many of them. I'm really glad to have one in it uh, called Feed Them Silence that's was written early on during the pandemic in isolation and I think reflects uh, that energy. Like I will say, I'm trying to be very open about the vibes are rancid in that one. It is not the same kind of book as Summer Suns. And it is about academia a little bit also, but more science research and conservation. And what if you could port your brain into the brain of one of the last surviving wolves in a near future science fiction thing? But is that a good thing? And why do you want to do that? And what purpose does it serve? And also a failing marriage in there too. 
So it's a rough one. I think it's, I like what I did, but I can see where it's like, woo, are you okay when you're writing that? Like, but I'm I mean, excited about it. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. Uh, do you know if, is it going to be like a, like a bound volume that I, yes. that I would be able to order? Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm already planning on, on shortlisting that when it comes available. Do you know a rough estimate of when that's coming out? I think it is now March 2023, because as many book nerds will know, all of the, the paper production stuff got everything bumped a couple of months. It's definitely early 2023. I think it is now March. All right, I'll accept it. I, <laughs> I'm not going to be happy about waiting, but I, I will gladly wait. Well, hopefully by then I'll be even more well established on here and I can have you back on the show to talk about that. And yes, uh, and as a, now a lifelong friend of the show. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know how I feel like all, like all of those uh, like NPR shows have their, their kind of cast of characters that they have on again and again. The rotation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like Mo Rocca or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Who I adore. It's always so <laughs> funny. Um, well, I'm so excited. Uh, um, what about, um, do you have any like short, like short stuff coming out in other publications? Uh, I do have an upcoming, I will have a short series of essays on the recent translations that have come out of the novels. They are like BL novels from China by uh, Mo Zhong Tongzhu, who did the Untamed novel, if you've seen the show. And all three of those just came out and they've gotten very little critical reception. And I think because they're like pulpy, silly, gay, like comic reads, but I think they're really good and they're fun. And I think we deserve to have fun. So I'm writing a series of essays about the first volumes that came out. They're great. They're good candy. It's, you know, the melodrama. I love a melodrama. So I'll have that coming out in January, I think, from tour. And then I have an academic piece in Signs in August about Annalie Newitz's novel that came out, I guess, two years ago now. Time's fake. Uh, the future is another timeline. <laughs> so I wrote that one, I think, about a year ago. And it's kind of dealing with how they work with history and like queer feminism and alternate history and how that tells us things about the American queer feminist movement. Might not be to everyone's cup of tea. It's very academic, but Annalise's book was really good and I wanted to write an article about it. So I did. <laughs> I love that. And being in, in the field that you're in is that you have the, the opportunity to do that where you can just decide to write about something that you enjoyed reading. <laughs> yes, it is the, the fundamental thing that draws me to any nonfiction about other people's books is that desire, much like a podcast, to just shake it at people and be like, you need to read this, it's so good. <laughs> so that's it. <laughs> that is uh, brilliantly stated because that's how I feel. Because I, I'm when I read a good book, I am so passionate about it. And I like, as soon as I finish it, I am like, back at work the next week and I'm writing my little uh little sign to put under it on the shelf the little like shelf talker um to put yeah. under it and that is why my store is just littered with my with my recommendations <laughs> um a bookseller at Walden Books in the back in the day when there was a Walden Books for uh -huh. like three years so I have a warm space in my heart for doing book selling it's nice you do get to just be like no this one <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I don't care what you are looking for today. You need to look at this one, <laughs> yes. which Summer Suns is definitely one of those for me. Uh, I, <laughs> well, thank you. Yes. I'll be shaking it in people's faces. So here is a chance to plug some of your personal favorites. So I'm going to start with um, other authors that you have met or would like to meet. Um, who have you met that excited you? And who would you like to meet? And that can that can extend to like living and dead if you want. So I will say I have like the biggest intellectual crush and just crush on Alexander Chi. I think that's an unsurprising answer for most people because he's a genius. <laughs> like his essays are so good. His fiction's so good. He seems also very kind in general. 
like from what I've heard of other like writers who have met him that he's very warm I would just lose it I don't know that would be a celebrity moment I think for me (laughs) so definitely definitely him Um, and I have met just a lot of really awesome people even just online you know as we have to during the past couple of years through debut like other debut authors or people who are in their first few years of their career who've been really supportive and friendly. And I think that's so important. Like, I love touting their books because they write good books and they're nice people and it's fun. Uh, Alex Harrow is a fellow Kentuckian who recently left Kentucky. So if she listens to this, yeah, she's on the Sheep Alert the Book. <laughs> yes, I, I know. It's funny because I, I didn't think to ask, but as we were talking, I was curious and I, I, I'm glad you brought it up so that I didn't have to remember because um, it's a nice little, little, blur. I'm like, I always wonder about blurbs too, like how those come about and, um, and who, what, like, what's the relation? Like, sometimes I think there are people that know each other. Sometimes I think it's like, oh, publisher pulls some strings to get a blurb from somebody I think Hadsies, I think it's half and half, at least in my experience. Alex is one of the first readers of the book, like the full final version, uh, because we lived very close to each other and could, even during the dark timeline, like still see each other outside in the yard kind of thing. So yeah, and she, her books are great. The recent novella from that tour line that I will be in later, A Spindle Splintered, which is very hard to say out loud, is like an alternate universe, almost like a spider verse, but like the Sleeping Beauty and it's queer and there's lesbians, Sleeping Beauty alternate timelines. It's illustrated. It was very cool. Oh my gosh, so, yeah. give it to me all day long. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pals. And I think I mentioned Shelley Parker Chan's novel earlier. That was phenomenal this year. I'm always so bad at these. I make a list every time because I read so many books as we all do. And then in the moment you're like, I've forgotten. I love everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh, Sarah Gailey's The Echo Wife. That one did me in earlier this year. They, that was a rough ending. And I say that with positive like intention that they did not pull their punches in that book. And I appreciated it. It hurt to read. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you need a book that puts you through the ringer, I think. Yes. Um, now, what about a book from your past that has been meaningful to you? Uh, it could also just be a book that you think everyone should read. So it's a great opportunity to plug something that is really meaningful to you. Yeah. So I have like a two-part answer. What made Childhood Me, the the writer who wrote this book probably in the long term, was uh, Billy Martin who wrote under the name Poppy Z. Bright's old gay horror novels because they were one of the first print books where I ever read a gay sex scene just by surprise in a book and it's like 13 and it was drawing blood and I was reading it and was like, oh, oh, it's happening <laughs> in the book. And that has really stayed with me in a positive way. Like their books, he just wrote such horny, weird, upsetting gay novels. And you could kind of sneak them out of the library because you people didn't know at that point, like what you were reading. And so I'll have a soft spot for that forever in my heart, I think. And then more contemporary wise, um, Ocean Vuong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous. Like, I also love his poetry, but reading that novel, because it is also so much about masculinity and growing up in a poor, like, space and also being, for him, like, the son of immigrants in these ways, like, how masculinity is dealt with. And he wrote an essay in the Paris Review where he had a line that was something like, I want to trouble heinous in a way, and that, like, stuck with me. I'm like, oh, good, I like this, so yeah. Those are the bookends, like the pulpy, horny gay horror novel, and then a very serious but beautiful, like, rumination on queer masculinity. Like, they go together, I guess. I love that. Well, and I I definitely have a soft spot for the pulp books, just in general, for even just the artwork. Um, I actually have some really great ones uh, in, in, like, shadow boxes on my, hanging on my wall, um, especially like the queer romance stuff. Um, there's some, there's some hilarious titles, some amazing artwork. Uh, it's I love that kind of time capsule. So yes. I guess 
I'm, I'm, I'm maybe after we're done with this interview, I'm going to have to go on eBay and start looking, <laughs> looking for those, but those are great. Those are great recommendations. Uh, it, like personally, I am very excited to look into those. Uh, now, what about something more recently? I mean, you, you said you're always reading. I know I am reading every single day. I mean, sometimes not enough. Um, but is there something that you're that you have recently read or are currently reading that you are enjoying? So I just picked up at actually the, the Barnes and Noble half off sale they were having after the holidays. Hey, my um, partner and I went I went on uh, this last weekend to that too, and got yes. stuck and cleaned up on that. <laughs> but the uh, the Lynn book, Gay Bar: Why We Went Out. I think that's the full title of it. Everyone's been saying it's phenomenal, and I started it. It's really good so far. <laughs> I it's funny because that is actually on my to be read pile. Uh, I have like a little stand thing in my bedroom that is literally just for my like these are books I should read sometime soon and that has been on there I actually so when I, I was actually working the day that that book came in and I like I was doing receiving work and I opened the box and I'm like well this is going in my like immediate immediately um so I'm glad to hear that that is so good yeah and also I picked up, I haven't started it yet, also with the sale. Um, I'm a big fan of Anthony Bourdain as like a model of a lot of ways of being. Like he was a kind man who wasn't a nice man and was able to deal with his problematicness and also be open and learn. It's a good model. I don't know. But a memoir by the his director and producer who had traveled with him for like parts unknown and the shows just came out. And I think I'm like emotionally in a place where I can read that now because I, I am really curious what one of his closest colleagues like will say about working with him, like especially prior to his death. So I'm ready to be sad about that one, but I think it'll be like a good, a good read, I hope. Um, yeah. So I know uh, you'll be so jealous then. Uh, years ago at Barnes & Noble, we had, it was like a boxed set of like, it must have been like Kitchen Confidential and like another book of his. And they were signed and I picked one up and I have it somewhere in my collection. <laughs> Just reread Kitchen Confidential like a month ago and it, it hits very differently now that I'm in my 30s, not a 19 year old who thinks maybe I'll just become a cook so I don't have to do anything normal. like. It's a different book when you're older. <laughs> yeah, well, and in, and in a different context. Too. Yes. <laughs> so what about something that's coming out uh, or something that you haven't read? I guess you've already touched at least a little bit on something that you haven't read, um, but some maybe some other titles that you're looking forward to reading. Um, I am. There's a book about to come out in January called Base Notes by Lara Elena Donnelly. Um, it's supposed to be like a, queer murder mystery about perfumiers. And that just seems like a lot in a good way. A lot of the blurbs have been comparing it to the energy of Hannibal. And I've liked Lara's previous stuff. So oh, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that'll be for me. <laughs> I am, I'm loving when they, like, when you find a book and it's like, it's about this very specific world. Yes. And that sounds like about as specific as it gets. I've never read a book about that before. <laughs> So. right queer and there's murder and like give it give it to me now i will yes. eat it up so i guess the last formal question i have on my list here is um if you have any parting words of advice um inspiration or recommendations i guess I, that's very broad and open so you know lay your wisdom on me yeah I think I'll be really sappy <laughs> and say that like community, especially now, is where it's at in terms of making art and doing art critique and being a good gay citizen amongst your friends and people similar to and different than you. Like make more friends, listen to more people, read more books, share things, like especially as like writers and folks who want to write, like other writers are not competition. They are your helpers. They're your friends. Like they'll make your art better and vice versa. So love them. They're good. <laughs> that's my words of advice. <laughs> I, I think that's great. As somebody who likes to write as well as read, I, I feel like every book that I consume that I also can 
pick up something from the energy of that, of whatever I've read. And, and I, I think that that is, that's so important to read diversely and uh, that will make you a better writer if that's your interest and will make you a little bit more well-rounded as an individual when seeing things from different perspectives. So uh, I think that is a fabulous note to round out our interview on. So uh, this has been just so much fun. Yes. Uh, Seriously, we could do this every week if we wanted to. Um, We'd probably not run out of things to talk about but Lee, thank you so much once again for being on the show. It has been an absolute treat. Um, for our listeners, you can find Summer Suns in hardcover and ebook now with, uh, uh, I believe there's a paperback date set for this next summer of 2020. so, yes. But don't wait. Buy it now. Uh, the hardcover <laughs> looks so much better on your shelf. Uh, you'll impress anybody who walks into your house. Um, I, I believe it was John Waters who said... You know, if you don't have books on your shelf, like, or if you go home with somebody and they don't have books on their shelf, don't sleep with them. Yes, that Um, was John Waters. (laughs) Yeah, don't let that happen to you. Get this book, Mm -hmm. put it on your shelf. So uh, so thank you listeners for tuning in. Um, If you enjoyed what you hear, please rate and review on whatever platform you listen on. And we will see you in the new year. Be safe, everyone, and thank you for listening, and thanks for reading. Thank you. Our theme music was written and composed by Jeremy Markle. If you have questions or suggestions for future shows, please send an email to thanksforreadingpodcast at gmail.com.